Hello, I'm Susan Gordon, and you're listening to The Culture Ball, the podcast where I fearlessly venture into the woods, finding and bringing to you the best in books, poetry, and art. Those of you who've listened to the show before know I usually do a thought piece or a spoken essay. Today is something a bit different and something very exciting. I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Diaz, a poet I first encountered through the Cafe Writers, a Norwich-based forum for new literature and poetry. After a, a, dare I say, impecunious start in Leeds, Michelle's family moved to Bridlington, East Yorkshire, in the early 80s. It was here that Michelle first found a love for poetry. She heard her mum read and recite poems, including Keats' Meg Merrilies and Godfrey Gordon Gustavus Gore by William Brighty Rands. And it was here that Michelle won her first poetry competition, run by Roger McGough and Brian Patton. At Manchester University, Michelle studied English literature and then went to Goldsmiths in London for her PGCE. She was a primary school teacher in nearby Catford for 12 years, finding time outside of lesson planning to go to the Poetry Cafe in Covent Garden and perform her work. After travelling through Europe and the US, Michelle married her partner in Santa Fe and they have a son, Dylan. Dylan has Tourette's syndrome alongside other health challenges and Michelle's debut pamphlet, The Dancing Boy, is based on their experience. Michelle lives in Glastonbury and was made 15th Chaired Bard of Innes Witchering in 2022. She's currently working on her first collection. Michelle Diaz, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I'm genuinely really, really excited um, about meeting you and uh, talking about your work. Uh, I thought though it would be a great way to start for people who haven't encountered your work before to hear some of it. So I understand you've brought um, two poems with us today and um, I'd be delighted if you could read them for us. That's right. Hi, Susan. So, um, yeah, so the first poem I'm going to read is called A Birth Journey in Nine Movements and it just covers the entrance of my son into the world um, from conception to pregnancy through to, to the final birth which wasn't an easy situation. Um, and it's a poem of humour. It's a poem that discusses a bit of fear of authority. Um, and it's also about intimacy and love. So this is it. A birth journey in nine movements. We are en route to Yorkshire. I stir my latte with a pregnancy test. It shows up positive. All the waiters do the macarena. My mother finds a clear blue box in the fridge. It is full of eggs. We have omelette for tea. The family has never been so together. I'm carried around by four angels who guard my apple pit cargo. Pump me full of oxytocin. Airbrush the stretch marks. My body wages war on vegetables. Organic and tinge of green are off the menu. I am possessed by the honey monster. Only pear drops and jelly tots will do. Three weeks to go. And somebody has let the bathwater out. Oligohydramnios. The midwife tells me you're shrinking. The sofa becomes a wet grave. I bury myself in the hospital. I have a bed with a bell. Mr. Doc says emergency caesarean. We float round the room 
like balloons in denial. Seven days go by. You are still not out. Despite Dr. Patel's insistence, despite the letter on serious yellow paper, despite my dangerously high blood pressure, I sense we are dying. I am probed silence. You have been leaked information. You are not coming. C-section. They find you. I become mummy. The room breathes morphine. The women sweat. I am in Tenko. The nurse has a moustache. She withholds pain relief. Wheels away, precious baby. A cold star rises above the saline drip. Guards the broken nativity. My old skin lines the corridor. The curt nurse picks it up. Strangely, I cry because you are no longer inside. Your dad closes the curtain in case they think I'm depressed. I'm not. It's just that I will never again know such intimacy. So the next poem I'm going to read is a recent poem. And this is called Red in the Light of New Seeing. And it, dis it discusses all sorts of things, really. It's, it's about repression. It's about embodying your womanness, your menstruation, all the things that, in a way, we've been taught to kind of push away and carry on. And, you know, you don't really embody those times. So this is about the liminal spaces, really. Red in the light of new seeing. It's here. The canine hearing, the heightened sense of smell, a small fist rebelling in the hot pipes, spasms in the echo room, obeying in code for blood, the reprogramming of the humours, the sharp swing from choleric to melancholic. If time allowed, her mind would unravel like a scarf of smoke. If she knew how to be good to herself, she would grab her rags and burrow underground for a snatch of red days. She'd stay in, safe in her rest nest, instead of work and post-work cocktails. She'd thank her body for the opportunity to feel the slow alchemy of quiet bleeding she would give praise for the holiest of holes and watch her pain change into crimson banner. Wonderful. Thank you so much. When I, I listen to your work, the your phrasing pulls me back. It's it's like it seizes my attention and um, it, it won't let me go. It's, it's, a, it's a highly subconscious experience. I think there's a, as a reader of approach, I think there's, um, of course, you know, every reader is entitled to feel differently. But for me, is is there's a balance to be struck between the the balance, the realistic, uh, the tangible things happening on earth, as it were, and there's the magical and and surreal. And and with you, I see this great force of, um, this a graceful, 
a balancing act uh, and there's an ease to it which makes it look effortless although I'm sure it isn't you grew up in a, a single parent family raised by your mom and uh, and other work that I've heard from you sort of illuminates you know that this is not an easy upbringing but I wonder in your um, earliest years um, was there how much of a presence was there of, of poetry of um, books and is it is it something that you sort of sought out like what were your earliest cultural sort of influences or what did you receive that you remember most most well I suppose my earliest memories of things like poetry well my mom as I said you know reading things like Meg Merrilee's um Godfrey Garden Gustavus Gore mm-hmm. um which was often they were cautionary tales um my, my mother also used to quote things from Shakespeare, like how sharper than a serpent's tooth if we were misbehaving. Mm-hmm. So my mum, because she'd also studied English, had a great way with words. So she read to us, she took us to the library. I think the library was one of my first amazing experiences. Um, it was Compton Library in Leeds and the floors were parquet and the smell, I just remember the smell of that building and the feeling when I went in, it was like I was crossing a threshold into something magical. And it was quiet. You know, libraries these days are hubs. So there are computers, there are child groups, there are people walking around and talking loudly, which is fine. But what I felt like, it was kind of like entering a church. It had a kind of magic, a kind of holiness to it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so my first introduction was, yeah, really, my mum telling me lovely stories and reading me poetry and our local library. Also, I had a teacher who would read lots of exciting stories and um, things like Roald Dahl and Helen Cresswell. And yeah, story times at the end of the day, which sadly I think are being pushed out of education now, they were a magic time. Mm. Um, They were a time when all the children would gather on the carpet and just listen and I think listening is becoming a lost art so um, yeah I loved hearing stories and I loved hearing poems and I started out with very sort of rhymy poems things I wrote myself things I listened to but as I grew into sort of teen um, that changed because then you get the teen angst so yeah yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you that uh, even in uh, difficult circumstances, you found a lot of joy in stories and, and words uh, at a, a very sort of young age. Uh, you went to uh, study English literature at university. At that point, did, was the choice of subject what what motivated you uh, to, to uh, study English literature? And uh, like, what were your thoughts as you started the course? And, and did you have at that moment any sort of thoughts of your own voice as a writer? At that point, I dabbled a lot. You know, I'd written lots of very teen-angst poetry. I loved writing songs, actually. Songs were my kind of way into exploring lyricism and, um, and I loved to sing. So that was kind of my first love. Mm-hmm. University initially for me was an escape from home because uh, I was brought up very strict Catholic and I wasn't allowed to go out very much. And in a way, it was the academic side that pulled me, but it was also that landing into another world and escaping from what felt like confines 
in my sort of childhood life. But I mean, I loved studying Old English. I loved Beowulf. I loved the dream of the rude. That was all new to me. Um, I'd read a lot of sort of American literature. I loved Sylvia Plath. But I loved, yeah, I loved all the medieval literature. And it was great to have lecturers and be able to talk to people on a very sort of what felt like a very academic level. Mm. Um, but it was hard, you know, because you sort of imagine you go there and there'll be all these centres where you'll all be chatting and talking about exciting literary things. It doesn't really work that way. You have to join groups and I joined the Folk Society and I sort of joined a book club. But as with everything, it's never quite as you imagine it. So I did a lot of reading on my own and I did a lot of studying on my own and the rest of the time was, you know, exciting nights out and folk nights and dancing. And yeah, so so I loved reading and I loved writing, but at that point I wasn't really exploring poetry in the same way. I was, you know, reading a lot of the greats, but I hadn't really developed the same love that I do now. You know, mm -hmm. now every morning starts with a poem. This was in early nineties uh, in in England. What? How would you describe the sort of what was it like, sort of culturally then, like the in terms of the uh, music and, and attitudes and things, because it's one thing that uh, crossed my mind when I was um, looking at your uh, background and, and thinking about, you know, what it might have been like at Manchester University is it's still a very sort of middle class route. And that's but that's not a sense that I get from you. You don't seem to, you know, you, there's a sort of lack of confinement about how you experience the world. Did you um, feel of at odds with the popular culture around you or did you feel that you were very much sort of immersed and accepted in it? Yeah well it was the Manchester time so you know I loved a lot of the music um I was sort of more into the 60s kind of feel at that point so I'd go to clubs that played 60s music you know it's quite a wild partier mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know, I love dancing and I love singing and I love boys, to be honest, because mm -hmm. I haven't had much experience of that. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of people from Surrey. I remember that. I remember this is one of the things I found weird was actually there were hardly any northerners in Manchester. It was like it flipped. Mm -hmm. Like all the southerners had come to the north. Um, and that was interesting. But, yeah, it, it, I had to sort of seek out fellow uh, like-minded types yeah, and you, I mean, and you sort of imagine that they're all going to be there in one place and then it's like, oh, no, wait, I actually have to find them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I found my best sort of buddy um, in my final year, um, a girl who actually did go on to be a professor of um, English. But interestingly enough, and this has happened with a few of my friends, once she had her family, mm -hmm. uh, she lost her funding and couldn't get it back. And that that is a real sort of pertinent point in education if you start a family it's almost like you fall to the bottom of the ladder and that shocked me so yes yeah, so I found my friend in my final year who was really into reading but never went to any lectures never went to any seminars but got a first <laughs> so that always sort of spurred me on I didn't get a first but you know um she was an inspiration because she loved Leonard Cohen and she loved Fleetwood Mac so you made uh, a friends, but it was like that. But after university, it was a, a big change again because so you were in London for teacher training at Goldsmiths. 
Yes, so I had two years in a school in Leeds, first of all, I was a special needs assistant. Um, the first child I had, I was assigned to, had Down syndrome. Um, the next year I had a very intelligent boy who had sort of emotional, social difficulties. So that in a way gave me more scope because I could really, I actually really got on with him. You know, he was, it was very easy to work with him. And then after that, I went to London and did my PGC year in PGC primary. And then got a job actually in my teaching practice school um, in Catford. And I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the children. I loved the diversity. I loved the fact that they were so receptive to music and story and poetry and they wrote their own. And yeah, the beginning of teaching was amazing. I absolutely loved it. By the end, it was a very different story because something had happened. It had become a rigid, prescribed, dare I say, quite a boring profession. You know, what was once a right brain profession became a left, a left brain one. So, you know, drama, dance, poetry, music were eroded and eventually kind of almost pushed out, I would say. So... You know, that's eventually why I got to the point, especially after I had my son, where I felt it's time to try something else, um, which was a shame because I loved being in London. I loved the kids, you know, I loved my colleagues. Um, but I did have the poetry cafe run, running underneath that, running alongside it. That kept me sane. And that's really when the whole love of poetry massively took off. But I didn't read enough at that time. I'm reading so much more on my poetry has improved as a result of that. And that's one of the things I'd say to any budding poets is read, 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 and then read some more. Because <laughs> it and, really helps. <laughs> and what was the sort of the push that would get you into sort of Covent Garden? Was it, had it a weekend at the... Um, no, no, it was a Tuesday night. So mm -hmm. I would go from Catford, I'd go from Hither Green, yeah. and I would travel to Charing Cross. And then me and my friend, who was a colleague, would run across, well, have you to have a glass of wine beforehand and something to eat, and then run down to Betterton Street where the poetry cafe was. And yeah, I mean, we had a great time. We found it really amusing. We loved the performance poetry. I'd never seen that. And there were lots of dishy men there as well. <laughs> so it was like a great package of all sorts of exciting things. And initially, I think the guy was called Carl Demon who ran the open mic. It was called Poetry Unplugged. And then it moved to a, a guy called N Niall Sullivan or Niall O'Sullivan. And it was just my highlight of the week. You know, we would go, we would drink, we would have a great time, we would hear poetry, we would do our own, uh, write our own. And then again, that improved with the performance on a sort of weekly basis. Uh, people who, are, um, who haven't been to uh, you know, events like these or or have, uh, haven't had the opportunity to immerse themselves in, in poetry. I often imagine a, a poet is a, is a quite an insular um, figure, someone who perhaps you would prefer a, a cottage in Gloucestershire with nothing there but sort of a stream and, and a windmill. And, and um, But you struck me as a, a quite a, a gregarious character, and, and that's something I've noticed from um, other poets I've met as well. And, and I think you do need to be have a degree of, you know, the, the extrovert to... Um, be in, in central London, be in Covent Garden, be comfortable there and then be performing your work. Uh, how, how fair do you think some of the um, some of the assumptions about poets, it, are they so fair at all? And, and what do you think of that balance between the sort of insular and then the sort of the public face of a, 
of, of a poet? Yeah, that's a really interesting one because I would say I'm both. You know, I'm definitely, I love time on my own. I love walking through nature. I love writing on my own. I love listening and reading on my own. But yeah, um, the public face is quite difficult at times, especially if you've got things going on in your personal life or you've had a bad day with your child or whatever. And it is a performance. And I can do it. And, you know, as the bard, I had to do it a lot in a particularly difficult year of my life. Um, but I think you have to have both. You have to have the reflective as well as the sort of stand in front of an audience and be a character. But it is a sort of a mask. And it's the thing I kind of struggled with as a sort of budding published poet because when I did my debut pamphlet, a lot of the, um, what should I say, sort of the advertising had to come through me. And to me, it always feels a bit like showing off. I find that really hard. You know, as a child, I was taught you don't show off. Mm-hmm. so you've got to put yourself on Facebook you've got to make a blog you've got to put pictures of yourself you've got to say what you've been doing and yeah that I found quite hard I have sort of fit in with it but I always imagined a poet to be you're the writer and then you have a sort of publicist or a PA and they'll do all that and that's why it's quite difficult in the contemporary poetry world is you've also got to be a promotional type and I'm not really, a, you know, a promoter, so I've had to make myself be one. I've had to kind of twist it into that particular knot, and, and it's hard. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, because it's, um, it's it's not what you used to choose, is it? Like you choose to write. You kind of can see that you're always like this. This poetry has been something that's very consistent in in your life, really, wow. right from the beginning. And what would, at what point did you feel comfortable calling yourself? A poet and and how much do you how ready are you to introduce that part of your life to for instance someone you haven't sort of met before or like what point in your career did that happen well that would probably be when I started to go to poetry unplugged mm-hmm. um in Betterton Street um, the poetry cafe but I didn't have anything published at that time. So maybe I really stepped into that role when I had my first publication, which was in 2009 with Live Canon. Mm-hmm. And they were a brilliant publisher because they would also perform your poems. So you sent in your submission, then you got accepted. And then we went for a performance in Greenwich Theatre um, of all the, all the poets that had been accepted. And then I thought, wow, now I feel like a poet because I've had a proper published poem she was two um, in a book so that's when I felt I could say you know I am a poet and then when my pamphlet came out in 2019 then you get you feel like you've been endorsed you feel like you know you've had a few things published but now you've actually got a body of work and yeah somewhere between 2009 and 2019 I started to really feel like a proper poet now, if a writer is completely unknown, there's one, or, or perhaps that they've just started, one of the, I think one of the freedoms that goes utterly unappreciated at the time is that they can write about anything that they want. And um, as, but as soon as you have some public notice, then you're going to be associated with some different things. And um, so then there's uh, different themes, basically, or, or sort of ways of, of being when you're writing do you search out um subjects ignoring the sort of external sort of pressures and trying to sort of forget you know reception of other things 
or uh, do you go with it and say, well, actually, this is a these are different themes that I'm comfortable with, so I'm just going to swim in this river. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very internal process, so I can only work with what comes up from the inner well, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. However, I'm aware that there are other things that I can be writing about, and if I have an affinity with them, then I'll write about them. But I would never just write for the sake of it because something's in vogue, you know, something's in the zeitgeist. I mean, at the moment, I mean, my, my initial writing was very much around childhood and womanhood and motherhood. And recently, without me consciously doing this, this is a sort of unconscious thing, my work seems to be moving into exploring wildness, moving from confines into a sort of wilder landscape. So a lot of my poems seem to be about, at the moment, um, camping and wild men and getting out of buildings and going out into nature. And actually, I've never really considered myself a big naturist, but somehow the walks I take and all the places I visit are suddenly being sewn into my writing, but that wasn't conscious at all. You know, I want to write about childhood and it's almost quite therapeutic. Um, but the last sort of maybe six, seven poems I've written, it's like a new voice and it feels fresh and it feels interesting because I don't really know where it's going to go. It doesn't feel like it's come from the same place, if that makes sense. It must be really exciting to sort of see um, almost a kind of uh, the subconscious becoming conscious, but without knowing, you know, what it's going to sort of become. Uh, one of the things I uh, noted with, with the work that I've seen, and I haven't I've seen all of your work, is that, that that family is very present in the um, in the storytelling. And um, I uh, in my notes, and I was thinking about how, so for instance, the late uh, we you talked about songwriting in in your youth, like the late. Uh, Amy Winehouse, like she would talk about, she would write a song about an ex, but the, the great thing about an ex is that you're unlikely to encounter them again, and if you did, then you'd probably not speak to them. But with when you're writing about a family, well, they're in the next room or they're downstairs, and the, your first pamphlet is about your son. And I just wonder, is, is there something, are there things to negotiate there when... Uh, when you're writing about the people most personal to you and uh like and for example like would your uh partner and husband would they uh read your work and or or do they appear in it and what sort of thoughts are going through your mind when you're sort of negotiating that i think you're telepathic susan because <laughs> that's come up very strongly for me in the last few weeks because i've been putting my first full collection together and it's morphed and it's changed mm. And a lot of it was around my son. He's a teenager now. He's no longer a sort of little eight-year-old who didn't mind me performing poems about him. You know, he'd come to the readings and I'd say, you know, oh, I'm going to do this one now. Is that one all right, Dylan? And he would um, say, yeah, fine. But now I'm having to run a lot of my poems by him. And we actually went together, went through, uh, I don't know, about five or six last week, the week before, and I said, look, are you comfortable? If I ever got these published, are you comfortable with these going in? And one of them, he said, no, absolutely not. Um, the other ones, he said, take that line out. Or So he became my editor, mm -hmm. which felt really right because, it's, yeah, it's a very hard thing because you want to be honest and you want to express fully, but then you don't want to upset anyone and you don't want to feel like you've betrayed anyone. So, yeah, I've been going back through a lot of my most recent poems, which do 
discuss mental health, that kind of thing, and really pulling apart, you know, what can I say and what can I not say, and what is just for me to keep in a diary, and what is, you know, for the outside world. But it's hard when you feel you could share something that may help somebody else. I mean, there are a lot of children who are under CAMS at the moment, you know, the childhood adolescent mental health system. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I've got so many CAMS poems in me. However, I've got to really navigate and balance what can I say and what can I not say. Um, I even had a, a difficulty with a family member this week who objected to one of my Facebook posts because it actually referred to our childhood. Now, there was nothing mentioned about him, or, but he was a bit offended. So it was almost like the universe, and then you're saying this now, Susan, and this is why I'm saying you're telepathic. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is a really strong sort of uh, thread that's going through my life at the moment is, what do I do with these poems? Do I, do I sit on them? Do I remove them? Or do I try and rephrase them? But then you're going into a sort of weird censorship area. So, yeah, it's difficult. But I think if you reflect and you speak to others and ask the people themselves, you'll get some kind of answer. And also, I I have a sort of spiritual bent. So I sort of say, you know, I won't necessarily call that person God, but, you know, otherness, higher being, um, you direct me. Because then I can't make a mistake. You know, even if I upset somebody, I'm coming from the right place. So... Yeah, I try and put it to a higher power because I don't know, and you know, <laughs> it's best to ask the big, the big ones if that makes sense. <laughs> Completely. The for for me, like as and and being in the audience, it's a great privilege to have an insight into somebody else's life. Like I, I adore memoirs. You know, I um, have worked a lot with memoir writing writers, and and it does come up as like, what can I um, say, but you know, it's actually the illumination into somebody else's life, which is in a different field. So if somebody is not raising a um, sort of child, for example, you know, that um, is going through, has to sort of engage with the National Health Service, then how can they know, you know? So so there's a big sort of public interest as well in being able to share, but at the same time, like, and, you know, working as an editor and then also as, as somebody in the audience, I never want somebody to feel so that they've sort of compromised or ex- exposed them, themselves to fully. The other thing as well is is there is an assumption that I think for new writers, also new readers or even writers in, in poetry, that it's always that person's autobiographical experience. And of course, it doesn't have to be. You know, it's a, a lot of... Um, you can really write in any sort of voice or, or character you want in poems as much as in um, any other form. So certainly when I, I listen to your work, I hear its authenticity, um, but I don't uh, feel as if I'm you know looking at a, a record of your life or anything like that, because I, it's not up to me to make that kind of assumption. You know, the, um, it's, it's the authenticity that people hear, it's not a, a, that people will receive. Um, but at the same time, I, I totally recognise that there must be a lot of thought that goes into your work when there's that sort of autobiographical sort of thread, like when you're writing about um, childhood, uh, which in itself is very exposing because you can't go back and change anything with childhood. It's not even it's it's no. so remote. It's it's in a way like it's not like the present where if you you know you can draw attention to something, but it could change. 
Um, one of the things I uh, wanted to talk to you about as well is is the is about being a poet as as a way of being and seeing versus uh, or put alongside a career. Because you know, even um, hearing uh, Simon Armitage say, you know, when he announced that he was going to be a poet, his parents or you know other people around him are basically concerned because uh, they're like, well you know, is that a job, you know, like that kind of thing, it, it, or like, how are you going to make this work? And this was, this was after, I think, his first collection had been um, published. Like, what would you say to people sort of starting out or people with questions around um, these things? Yeah, I think primarily it has to be a way of being, you know, you're kind of like a living observer and you're interested in people, you're interested in nature, it's, it's being interested in those things and it's, it sort of comes naturally. I mean, you can force yourself to be interested in things, but I find my best poems come from things that sort of well up inside me. Um, and I do love people. I love watching people. And as a child, I was very much an observer. and I took a lot of these things in and some of the things were quite difficult to deal with. And there is a sort of therapeutic branch to my poetry. But yes, I think being a poet having a career as a poet is a difficult thing firstly because it doesn't pay <laughs> you couldn't live off being a poet it has to be something that you love you know it's um a, there's a there's a guy called joseph campbell don't know if you're aware of him and he talks about following your bliss and i think poetry is a sort of vocation and you are a you're a sort of an observer of the world and you are a mouthpiece for yeah for, for nature for people for yourself your own soul and i very much link it with spirituality i think if you if you really are a feeling person you, you tend towards things like poetry art music yeah, so I could never really see poetry as a career. However, I do have some sort of strict regimes now, whereas before I could just go out with a notebook and write and then come back. Now it's like I start my day with a poem because I think it's really important to read other people's stuff. Uh, this morning I was at a poetry group and there's a little gathering in the church and we go and read poems to each other and some of them are our own and some of them are famous ones. But I think the most important thing is reading poetry, listening to poetry and absorbing that and then you will be a good poet and it doesn't really matter whether you make a career of it or not. Uh, if you want to become a serious poet then put in a bit of structure and that's kind of what I've done you know as I say every day start with a poem and then something may come later and editing is another thing you know if you're going to make it a career if you're going to make it a serious business then you have to learn to edit and proofread your work and get other people to look at it too, you know, people that you trust. You have to be kind, <laughs> strong but kind. You know, a lot of damage can be done by just a word or a phrase that is, you know, maybe constructive criticism, but it actually feels like a judgment on a body of work. That I feel isn't helpful. But if somebody says, oh, that turn of phrase is a little bit old-fashioned or the way you said that was too strong or that image is just too much and that will be too much for people, then that helps you regroup and start to change how you write um, in a constructive way. One of the things I wanted to talk to you um, before I talk about your role as, as the abider category was 
because you've had the benefit of seeing the sort of poetry scene as it were like for a few years is what is your assessment at the moment of like things that are sort of going well and, and maybe things that you would like to change but what sort of changes have you seen over the last sort of 10 years or so that have been sort of good and maybe not so good well I love the diversity within poetry now and I love the sort of the serious voice that does sort of tackle pertinent subjects of you know the zeitgeist the things of now um whereas you always used to imagine poets as you know sort of just the academics sitting in an office you know you've got philip larkin and yeah. ted used to a certain extent and that kind of thing a poet sounded very serious but we have such a vibrancy of, of different voices now um, it's almost like anybody anybody could be a poet not necessarily always a good poet but anybody can try and there are some amazing new voices you know fantastic northern voices black voices indian voices uh, people who are hard of hearing people who are blind you know it's so completely inclusive now and i think that's a fantastic thing I was asked a question recently when I said, you know, how to join the word poetry. And they said, what's it about? And I was like, well, it's about anything you like. It really is about anything under the sun. You know, that's, that's, that's what a poem can be. Before we uh, close as well, is is your world as the abode of Glastonbury, which uh, sounds uh, sort of medieval and fantastic. And uh, I'd just like to hear a little bit about what that world is and how you came to it and your experience of it. Sure. So every year there is a competition and there is a title. And so somebody sets a theme. So it might be uh, Prometheus or the gods or the twilight of the gods. And my particular theme for the year that I decided to write was the mirror of Avalon. And that really inspired me within about 15 minutes of hearing it, because there's always an announcement at the Market Cross of the previous bar because the previous bar chooses the theme for the next year and POC was our three-year uh, bar because of COVID we uh, we didn't change there was no competition for three years so he announced the Mirror of Avalon. I went away and within about two weeks I was writing a sort of epic piece which isn't really my usual way I'm quite short my poems tend to be quite short but this has to be between eight and fifteen minutes so and you have to learn it off my heart. This was a real challenge. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I put music into it. I wrote my own songs to go with it. I um, learned it off my heart. And then I had to perform it at the Bardic Trials. I got through to the last six or seven. I think it was seven. And then there was the final and I won, which was a really exciting day. I was so, so happy. Um, you know, because you have to wear a certain garb and you have to be confident. And it really took me out of myself. And it was last year, so it was the year of the Jubilee, the Queen's death and the uh, the coronation. So I had a lot of civic duties to perform. So it's kind of like being a laureate, which <laughs> normally, you know, you don't really have to do that. I had to write poems for Michaelmas. I had to write poems for all the turn of the year you know the wheel of the year you're expected to write something at Sawen, at Beltane, at Autumn Equinox all those different markers through the year and I took it seriously I'm a Capricorn and you know <laughs> if yeah. you believe in astrology 
I like to do things well and I like to do things properly. So I made sure I wrote something for all those occasions and performed um, at the tribunal in Glastonbury, which is the oldest, I think one of the oldest medieval buildings in Glastonbury. Um, it was a real honour. And it was, and it's difficult because in a community, once you put your head above the parapet, you get some really lovely, lovely uh, comments and some lovely feedback, but you also get another stream, as you can imagine. Um, so I've not really put my head above the parapet like that before. So that was an interesting experience and uh, yes, quite uh, challenging in many ways, but it did, it did build me up as well as knock me down. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Diaz, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, speak to you this afternoon. If listeners would like to keep up with you and, and hear your news, where can they find you? So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm on what was Twitter, but is now an X. Yeah. Not to refer to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't got my Twitter handle in front of me. You may have that. Yes, but, yeah. so I will, I'll pop yeah. those links in the episode description when we um, uh, publish this so um, so people will be able to um, follow you there uh, on those different platforms. The uh, your, uh, PowerPoint you mentioned there, Darker Boy, is published by Against the Grain Poetry Press. Uh, so uh, I hope that listeners will seek that out. And thank you again, and thank you to our listeners for joining us at the Cultural Ball. I hope that you'll meet me again next time as we go into the woods. Thank you. Thank you.